Hi there, Ron Shera here for Star Bank. If you're putting your money into mega banks down the street, who knows where that money's being used? Bank locally. Keep your money local with a community bank that actually cares about you, your family, your business, and your goals. Check out the bank we use at Minnesota Bound. Try Minnesota's own Star Bank. You can find them online at starbank.net. When you call Star Bank, you actually hear a real living person answering the phone. StarBank has 10 convenient locations around Minnesota to serve you and all the mobile banking products that you need to manage your money. Check out all that StarBank has to offer at StarBank.net. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of a Minnesota Bound podcast. Ron Sherry, your host today. And the best way to put this is this show is going to be for the birds. Now, normally, <laughs> that's a compliment, really, because my special guest today is Dale Gentry with the Audubon Society. Dale is uh, located right here in the Twin Cities, although if you're familiar with the Audubon Society, you know it's a national, perhaps even international organization with a long history of bird uh, conservation work. Um, Dale, what, what do you do here in Minnesota? Yeah, I am the conservation manager for the state. So I coordinate all of our science and conservation projects in Minnesota. We have a regional office that also covers Iowa and Minnesota, but at least for now, or sorry, Iowa and Missouri. For now, I'm focused on Minnesota. Well, you know, thank goodness we have that kind of work going on here. Um, it's no secret that we're losing the war. Um, and, and, you could take a negative viewpoint there, but what keeps you going? Because I just came back from a visit to Iowa State University in Ames, where I went to school, and boy, driving on, on 35W uh, through yeah. northern Iowa, is, I told my wife, there's, there, there's not a damn place for a mouse to live out there. <laughs> it's all corn and soybeans. Huh? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, I... I've been interested in birds since really since college. And so the opportunity to, to play a role and, and, and trying to find a little spot for birds amidst our, our you know, our, our network of, of farming and urban areas is, is great joy for me. And, and as you mentioned, I don't want to say we're losing the war, but there's, there's reason for concern. There was a, a big publication that came out two years ago that showed that uh, comparing the birds in North America from 1970 to and this was 19 or 2019, but 2020, we've lost about 29% of our birds, about three, 3 billion birds. So overall the population or the, the community is, it's declining. There are fewer birds than there used to be. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, we hear those anecdotes, but there's now there's data to support that. Yeah. And it's very difficult for somebody like myself that feeds birds in the backyard or, uh, you know, I have wood duck houses out to make any kind of, uh, you know, ascertain what's going on. Yeah. Although, I'll tell you right now, as we talk in the April of 2022, uh, I haven't seen any wood ducks show any interest in my wood duck boxes this year. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen any wood yeah. ducks yeah. Yeah, speak right. up. I go, yeah. uh, this bird flu, is that, the, I mean, I, you go, what's going on? Maybe yeah. it's such a cold April. I mean, are they still lollygagging somewhere else? I mean, right. So you, you wonder. Yeah, right. You know, those are good questions. And the, the bird flu is a, is a concern. And we know that waterfowl are uh, certain are carriers, but also are, are vulnerable to mortality from that. 
and and it's been a cold year, but you know there there are some general declines, and wood ducks are you know as as cavity nesters. They're one of the species that's sort of struggling in response to our just our habit of cutting down trees when they die. You know, it's a dead tree; it's kind of a nuisance. Let's cut it down for safety or for whatever reason. And uh, you know, if it wasn't for people like you putting uh, boxes up. Uh, wood ducks and other you know, waterfowl and songbirds and woodpeckers that are dependent on those would, would be in even worse shape than they are. But yeah, yeah, I have I've uh, read that and noticed uh, uh, agree there. I don't want to get off the topic because we're going to talk about the Audubon, but yeah. we mentioned the bird flu, and um, where did this come from? And uh, excuse me, I didn't warn you about this question, so maybe <laughs> no, it's okay. I've been thinking. Uh, uh, quite a bit about it for the past couple of weeks. It's a very prominent issue. We're getting all kinds of questions, you know, about should I keep my feeders up and are the birds going to be okay and what's the situation? It's you know, really great questions. All of us want to do no harm, you know, and so the, the thought that having a bird feeder up could could do so is a concern. So, you know, the bird flu is something that's just been with us. And, and I think actually COVID has, uh, has prepared us well to think about this because we're all much better educated about how diseases spread than, so than bird we were flu a couple isn't years a ago. new phenomenon? Is that what you're saying? Well, n- n- the bird flu is not, but the strain of the bird flu is. Oh. Right? So this is, uh, we had a, a, um, a, a new strain come up in 2015. We, a lot of people in Minnesota will remember we had a bunch of turkey and poultry farms that were hit and they had to... Uh, you know, to cull those birds. And so now we have another new strain. And this year is different even from that strain because that one was really only affecting, um, you know, our our uh, domestic birds, but we didn't see hardly any birds dying that were wild birds. But this year we're seeing a lot of wild birds die. And so that's caught a lot of people's attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we know that it's, you know, that it's uh, carried primarily by waterfowl and shorebirds. Uh, but for the most part, it doesn't, kill them. They're just carriers, they're vectors. But then things like raptors and corvids, ravens and crows and, and whatnot will go and eat uh, a dead bird that might uh, have had a had the bird flu and then they'll get it and it might be very serious for them. Kind of like for each of us with COVID, right? Some One person gets COVID and it's almost nothing and for somebody else it's life-threatening. Does it travel by air too? Because I was looking at, uh, you know, when I first they first mentioned, hey, this is a tricky farm in southern Minnesota. It's got bird flu. And the next thing you know, uh, all over southern Minnesota, miles and miles apart. Yeah. You go, how did it get from there to there? Yeah, it's probably not in air in the same way that COVID does, for example, but it's, it's through bird feces. And so it's... But, the, the, but they're inside a shed, you know? Right, I mean, right. There's no well, eagle flying over and yeah. taking a dump on the place, you yeah, know? Yeah, but there are probably are waterfowl flying over and, you know, and, really? and, and that those feces are, are uh, you know, spreading through the air. And, and huh. so it, the migration season, the movement of all the waterfowl and, the you know, kind of the, the cool spring and just the, the cold and wet climate that we have this time of year amplifies it. And it's likely that later in the summer, if, if it follows the normal pattern, this will become less of an issue because birds will stop migrating in the summer and it'll warm up and hopefully it'll go away. But for the next couple of weeks to a month, it's going to be a big concern. Well, you can't, you can't gather all the eagles and inoculate them. So <laughs> you can't, no. Nope. It has to run its course then, right. what you're saying. Yep. Does it mean it'll come back next year or you don't know? It could. Yeah, we don't know. It's certainly something we're concerned about. And, and I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist, but uh, 
but it's it's likely something that will pop up again from time to time and 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 you know our hope is that we can take some measures to prevent its spread the best we can sometimes these things come across the ocean or our government does not have the protections they should have had up i mean this, uh, yeah. strange things happen in this case you're telling me that this was just here um it wasn't anybody that screwed up to have it yeah, the I think that's right. And I, that's not a, a topic I know a, a huge amount about, but I believe, you know, I, I know at least that the bird flu is, is, uh, at least of, of recent history has just been part of our, our bird community. And occasionally you get these, just like we get seasonal strains of the flu you get seasonal strains of the bird flu within the bird community. And sometimes they're just a lot more serious ones. And this year we're seeing, you know, the worst strain we've ever had because it's causing so many wild bird death and, Domestic bird deaths, certainly very concerned about the poultry industry as well. Well, although bird flu is, of course, on everybody's concern, it gets all kinds of headlines. Yeah, right. What doesn't get headlines are the disappearing uh, grasslands in Minnesota and the other disappearing habitats that made the decline of the populations of our songbirds and other birds that you referred to earlier. And, uh, for example, on Minnesota Bound here, I'm working on a story. I'm calling it The Hunt for Meadowlarks. Uh, almost uh, uh, juxtaposition yeah. because uh, you'd never hunt them, but they're so damn rare. Mm. I'm looking for them. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by hunting right. them. Yep. And uh, we hope to get out this spring and do that. And we're going to talk about uh, those issues, habitat issues, which I'm guessing, Dale, are the heart of most of the problems. They are, yeah. Of all the concerns we have, whether it's you know pollution or bird flu or whatever it might be, the loss of habitat is really a number one issue of concern for, you know, grassland bird species or forest bird species. They're almost the majority of the bird declines we're seeing are, are because of, of lack of habitat, changing the habitat, lower quality of habitat. That's where we feel like we can make the most positive impact is by improving the habitat and the birds usually re- uh, respond well to that in return. Mm-hmm. I, I remember... Over the years, having worked for South Dakota's Game and Fish Department, et cetera, when the pheasants went down, everybody was ready to blame the fox and the coyotes mm. and the skunk and uh, totally ignoring the fact that they had wiped out all the grassland nesting <laughs> habitat for pheasants and wondering mm-hmm. what happened to them. So uh, that that never seems to go away. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, that's one of our challenges is trying to find a balance where we can, of course, maintain our commodities and support the agricultural industry, but try and find a little niche for the birds to thrive as well. And, you know, our partners, Ducks Unlimited and Pheasants Forever do a great job working with those game birds. And Audubon tries to fill that niche working with uh, the non-game birds, songbirds and shorebirds and, and uh, raptors and whatnot, uh, trying to find suitable habitat for them as well. We'll talk more about birds as this show is for the birds. I'm talking with Dale Gentry from the Audubon Society. And we'll be back chatting more with him right after these important messages. Hewitt Docks, Lifts, and Pond Two Legs began in a small south-central Minnesota town with a mission to make dock install and removal easier by inventing the Rolla Dock. Well, now the company has evolved to provide everything you might need to improve your lake time. In addition to the classic Rolla Dock or the new Ultra Dock system, Hewitt offers all-terrain staircases, gangways, canopies, and lifts along with any accessory you might need. Celebrate 50 years of business with us. Go to HewittRad.com to enter for a chance to win a free dock and monthly prizes. 
Hewitt docks, lifts, and pontoon legs. Work hard, play harder. You deserve a Hewitt. Hey there, Bill Shirk, the man about the woods. You know, today is a day for adventure, and Cub has all the Nabisco snacks you need to make sure that adventure is delicious from start to finish. Life is just sweeter when you share Oreo cookies on the trail. Also, when you crunch Ritz crackers at the campsite or rock the boat with rich cheese crispers. Stop a Cub on the way to your adventure. The great outdoors is calling. Be sure you bring the snacks. All right, welcome back. If you just heard my joke, I've said this show is for the birds. <laughs> I laugh at my own stuff. It's the Minnesota Bound podcast, and uh, it is for the birds because we're talking with Dale Gentry, who is with the Minnesota Audubon Society, and we're going to find out more about what he does. Dale, again, welcome back as we talk birds. Thanks. So happy to be here. Um, you, you said your, your task here with the Audubon Society, and I, I hope folk, folks out there know uh, the long conservation history and the famous name of Audubon and, and, and their interest, uh, the organization's interest. Audubon himself was a, uh, quite the wildlife bird artist, a uh, long career history mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. But let's talk, Dale, first about uh, uh, what is Audubon and your, what you do, et cetera, trying to move the needle here in Minnesota as far as securing a bird future. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Thanks for asking. You know, we, we, uh, do our best to look around the state and just try and get our, our thumb on what's going on with the bird community and highlight the areas where there's greatest need and go in there and, and try and make some positive action. And so we are involved in, in habitat restoration and enhancement. And I think what we see as, as two of the most, um, important, but also threatened ecosystems in the state. And so right now we're focused on grasslands in western Minnesota, especially northwestern Minnesota, and then on the Mississippi River, which is just such a critical um, uh, flyway, as we call it, for migratory birds. Uh, something like 60% of North American species uh, use the Mississippi River as a, a kind of a route to help them find their way on their migratory journey into the north, and then also as really important breeding habitat. And uh, there's just a recent publication showing that the Mississippi River is one of the most endangered rivers in the country and in the world. You know, we've got concerns with pollution, concerns with too much water, really. So I actually grew up in Idaho. It's hard to conceive of too much water coming from a desert environment, but that river floods too much, and the trees that uh, that are in those bottomland forests just can't handle that much water. And so if you go for a drive down from the Twin Cities down to La Crosse area, you see these bottomland habitats filled with snags, with, with standing dead trees, because those, those trees just can't sit in saturated soils for months on end. And so we're working to try and uh, reforest those with our partners from the Fish and Wildlife and the DNR and U.S. Army Corps engineers, try and get forest growing on those habitats as well. So, Well, if they are flooding, what would stop them from reflooding after you <laughs> planted the trees? No, that's a good question. That's, and that's why we need our partners, because the Army Corps is helping try and address some of those um, Know, the trying to raise the levels of some of the the, uh, the islands with thin layer placements of some of the dredge material, um, but in reality we're just trying to change the stru- the uh, the composition of those forests as well. Some of those trees that could handle short term floods aren't doing so well, so we're trying to replant trees that can tolerate longer floods. I want to make this political, but does the Army Corps of Engineers uh, are they a little bit easier to get along with? Because uh, in my history. 
uh, knowing about them. It was, you know, their their main job is to make sure we have uh, transportation up and down the river, and they could care less about your trees or the birds. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to talk with them, actually. They've got a great collection of foresters that work at, in the districts up and down the river, as you said. And uh, if you go back in time 50 years, you know, bird habitat or even forestry was was not prominent in their mind. And what forestry they did do was thinking about forest products and how do we manage these bottomland forests to make sure they're productive. And things have changed really in the, in the past 20 years where they, they see the need for, um, for those forests, not only for birds, but also you know, the stability of those islands, which are really important for fish habitat and the well-being of the fish pop community in the river. And so the Army Corps is, is just as interested in we are and wanting to partner with us in getting those forests and those islands healthy and happy again. Well, if the river has a history now of flooding more often than not, I mean, it's very simple. That's because we're dumping more and more water into the river at any one point. That's because we've drained and drained and drained. Yeah. So wouldn't it make sense to start working back up on the watersheds? We're doing that as well. Yeah, we're doing that as well. Audubon is not um, really closely involved in that. And that's, a, that's, a cha- that's you know, the challenge I alluded to earlier, trying to maintain our agricultural productivity. But look for opportunities to, uh, you know, if, if we've got wetlands that we put uh, drain tile in that are not the most productive sites for agriculture, you know, let's, let's plug up some of that drain tile and let that water sit in the system. Because the, certainly the, the building of the locks and dams you know, amplifies some of the flooding, but so does the, the draining of the wetlands, which are, uh, you know, the important matrix for the grassland ecosystems and for the, for shorebirds and, and ducks and waterfowl as well. You mentioned that one uh, thing you're, you're involved with with Audubon is to restore a lot of our grasslands in western Minnesota, southwestern, I, I assume. Um, big job because I, I don't know the numbers and sometimes they're so big, can't even fathom, but like 90 some percent of our grasslands are gone. Yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of comeback there. Yeah. Yes. There, before yeah. You, you have to restore a lot of them before you even move the needle. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And if you, and if you restore this one and it's surrounded by a black sea of dirt, not much is going to yeah. change there. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. No, but. that's that's great. I mean, it's a good point. So yeah, somewhere in the neighborhood of ninety-eight to ninety-nine percent, at least of our native prairie in Minnesota, is converted, um, you know, to some something else that's not native prairie anymore. Uh, it's just such great agricultural land. You know, you can't necessarily blame farmers for wanting to take advantage of those opportunities. So, so yeah, we're working in a couple areas and one is just improving the prairie that, that does remain. Uh, in a lot of those areas, there's encroachment from, from shrubs and trees. And so, you know, where we're planting trees in the Eastern half of the state, we're, we're cutting them down on the, on the West and trying to get those prairies back to, to prairies and uh, making them good, suitable habitats for prairie chickens and grouse and all of the grassland birds and meadowlarks as well. But we're also, I'm really excited about another opportunity. One of um, Audubon's national programs, something called Audubon Conservation Ranching. And that's where we're saying, you know, can we produce good habitat for grassland birds even beyond just those native grasslands? And so we're working with cattle farmers or ranchers, depending on what you want to call them in different parts of the uh, of the state to to change the way we raise cattle so that you can have that balance of productive field and grassland birds at the same time. And so I, I, I'm so excited about this. Part of what attracted me to 
to working for Audubon is this program because a lot of people, if you look at the, you know, the, um, the people that are modeling habitat around the world, they say, we need, we need something like half of the world to be, you yeah. know, pristine habitat in yeah. order for, for the, you know, all the birds and, and not going to happen, not going to happen. Right. Yeah. It's, some, it's more like 13 to 15% of the country that's public land right now. So how, it's just such a, such a void. How could we possibly find some middle ground there? And that's where I think private land conservation is the future. Finding ways for, for agriculture to be uh, compatible with wildlife, that's the future of conservation. I would add to that, having been into the conservation wildlife wars for a long time, and that is we've neglected to bring farmers to the table to talk about yeah. this. Yep. It's always been, they're evil. Yeah. We're going to straighten you out. Um, uh, and so I, I'm encouraged by that. Uh, the other thing I was, I think you and I chatted about earlier, and that is, uh, Pheasants Forever, I think, learned this lesson, maybe Audubon as well. You, 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 you go to the public and you're trying to get, hey, we need more grasslands because the Tweety birds are in trouble. And the Pheasants Forever, you say, hey, we need more grasslands because we want, we have to have, to have more pheasants. And people on the sideline would say, oh, yeah, Fence Forever, you just want more feathered targets. And uh, other people would say, oh, Tweety Birds, hey, excuse me, I got, I got to pay my taxes. I'm not worried about the Tweety Birds. <laughs> right. But if you say grasslands are needed because our, our water needs to be cleaner than it is and we're going to run out of clean water, yep. that resonates more. Yep. Have you learned that too? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's what Audubon you know, it says the birds tell us and what the birds tell us is that, it, you know, that, that what's good for birds is good for us. And so as much as Audubon is, and I am personally, you know, love going out and, and seeing grassland birds and seeing forest birds. I know that when we're uh, taking care of habitat and improving conditions for the birds, it's good for us as well for, for so many reasons from, you know, from clean air and water. And now we're seeing opportunities to have, agriculture partner with good grassland birds as well, but, you know, just providing spaces for people to go out and enjoy nature and hunt and fish and, and, uh, and count birds or whatever it is that, that entertains them. That's going to be good for, uh, the birds at the same time it benefits society. And that's what we want to find those win-win opportunities. Yeah. I'm a, we're going to take a short break here, but deal, but real quick, I have to tell you, I just, uh, came back from my alma mater, Iowa state, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, chat with some journalism students there, mm-hmm. and they gave me some award. I don't know why, but anyway, um, I have a hunch why. <laughs> and uh, but I, I I shared with them a story about the first time I saw the power of the press because I, as a journalism, fish and wildlife biology student, <clears throat> you had to you had to work as a reporter, and because I was a fish and wildlife student. Um, all of us would notice things in campus. If there was something rustling in the bushes, we'd go look at it because we're fishing wildlife. <laughs> right, yeah. Other students, they just walk right on by. <laughs> we would look, and we, we were finding robins that no longer could fly, no longer could walk. They were just fluttering there. And, and when they, and they would, sometimes you'd find them and they're fluttering and they died in your hand. And when they, when they died, rigor mortis immediately set in, which... Mm. For those of us, we knew that, that wasn't that was strange. Also, so we started bringing these dead robins to to the fish and wildlife offices, and the professor there they gathered them up, and we sent them to a lab to be what's going on here. Yeah. Lo and behold, this is my big scoop. 
here's the Iowa State ground crew. Iowa State, the center of agriculture expertise on how to do everything right, <laughs> including chemicals. They were spraying their Dutch uh, elm trees for Dutch elm disease and re- totally ignoring what that chemical might have an impact on robins because yep. it was the chemical drips off the elm tree, falls into the ground, the, ground, the earth, earthworm, uh, night crawlers gather that up and they come up to the surface in a rainstorm and Robin comes along eating these until he gets so much in his body that he can no longer survive. And so that was my first big story. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and they got picked up by the Des Moines Register and very embarrassing for the Iowa State. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yep. uh, but that was, that was a, a, my first lesson on, on the value of uh, journalism and yep and sticking with the facts, yep. et cetera. Yeah. Anyway, well, it, it, it echoes the story of, of Rachel Carson and her famous, you know, silent spring t- teaching us that, you know, our eagerness to use all these new chemicals that we learned how to synthesize, you know, had some repercussions and yeah. some un- unintended consequences that, that were still sort of, uh, you know, tr- trying to remediate in response to those, those. I remember I, spring. I, I, drank that Rachel Carson book up. (laughs) I bet. Listen, Dale, we'll be back. Uh, We have to take a short break. Uh, We're talking with Dale Gentry of the Audubon Society. We'll be back after these messages. You know, the Shirks love Connecticut water. It's no secret. Have for many years. We live out in the country and we have that ironclad well water. Well, we treat all of our water with the Kinetico Whole Home Water Treatment System. And we also use Kinetico's K5 Drinking Water System. That buildup, that white buildup you get around faucets, nope, we've got none of that. Our dishes are clean. Katie loves what Kinetico Water does for her hair and skin. And the boys drink water out of the K5 system all day long. The best part to me, the well water taste and foul smell, they are gone. So. Call Connecticut like we did and look forward to clean, safe water. Reducing carbon emissions is good for everyone, but how do we reduce emissions while also meeting our world's increasing energy needs? Using propane is an excellent way to reduce emissions while meeting energy needs today. Propane is a clean, non-toxic energy source that helps reduce carbon emissions right now. In fact, propane's carbon intensity score in Minnesota is only 80. Grid electricity in Minnesota, including wind and solar, has a much higher carbon intensity score of 136. Who knew that using propane was much cleaner than electricity? Plus, the abundance of propane and growth of renewable propane means it can be used for generations to come. Millions of Americans rely on propane to heat their homes and businesses, fuel vehicles on-road and off, and much more, making propane the right energy right now. Find out more about what propane can do for you and the environment by going to propane.com. Welcome back to this Minnesota Bound podcast. Ron Sherry, your host today. And uh, as I said earlier, because I think I'm funny, this show is for the birds, <laughs> but actually I'm visiting with Dale Gentry, who uh, is with the Audubon Society here in, uh, in Minnesota. He's got an uh, important job of uh, coordinating conservation efforts on behalf of uh, birds and the Audubon Society. Dale, welcome back again. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Audubon Society itself. How uh, it, it's, you know, as a, 
it's one of the first names I remember as a as a bird conservation group. Yeah, yep, yep. It's been around since 1905. I think it's the oldest, uh, you know, sort of conservation nonprofit in the country. And you know, I think it's uh, I think we have a, a great reputation in part because we do a lot of great work. Uh, you know, among them, the Christmas bird count, where people have been going out for over a hundred years to do these sort of standardized counts in the same circles around the the you know Christmas and New Year's every year and and that gives us the ability to to look at long-term trends and use science to guide our work and we really feel like we need the best science in order to make sure we're we're putting our conservation uh, you know money to to work in the best way that we can and so yeah you know Audubon's just been working on birds for years and we're uh, you know continue to plan to continue to do that as, as long as we can. I'm curious because some conservation groups are, you know, going off into the sunset because uh, younger generation, not, is the Audubon growing yet or declining or maybe you don't want to say? No, that's a good question. No, yeah, I think we're growing. And we've certainly seen a lot of positive growth in the past couple of years. Things like the pandemic where people suddenly found you know, and guidelines to avoid congregating in public. And so they started going out for hikes and couldn't find a pair of binoculars on the shelf anymore because people were finding, um, you know, what was right in their backyard that they had missed for all these years was was so appealing. And so Audubon's growing um, for, for a number of reasons, I think, because of our, our good science and our good work, but we're helping just give people opportunity to connect with nature and with birds. And, and, um, and so we're, I'm excited about the future. Well, uh, you know, I became a bird watcher as, through college, I think, because I, I had to take a course in ornithology, which was fascinating. But I think I shared this story with you. I uh, Out in the field, we were on a more early morning field trip with a professor, ornithology, and we're, you know, all of us have binoculars, and we're listening and looking birds, and the professor points to one way up in the treetops there. It had a bright orange breast and black and white and and uh he's anybody know what that is i go oh, i don't know what that is I said, well that's a rose-breasted grosbeak i'll go wow what a beautiful what a beautiful bird uh and he's uh, yeah oh yes they're native here in my case iowa it's true in minnesota as well yeah they're they're native here and they spend all summer with us i go wow now i'm in my late teens early 20s I thought I knew everything in the woods. I thought I had seen everything. Yep. I had never seen one of those. It was a lesson to me that uh, keep your eyes open. You yep. don't know. You know. Anyway, I share that with you because uh, bird watching ever since is fascinating to me. I'm, you can't go through a winter like we did and not look at a chickadee and say, mm. how in the hell do you do it? <laughs> Isn't that true? Yeah, those little teeny, you know, couple ounce birds that can endure a Minnesota winter it's remarkable, and it's actually quite fascinating how they're, they're, you know, eating seeds and finding little, you know, insect eggs and adult that are surviving the winter in their own way, and they, they get by. But yeah, and I, and that's something I've come to appreciate about my career in ornithology and, and what interested me in birds as well, is that as I get to know the birds better, it just, yeah, I think it gives you a better sense of the woods, and I've always enjoyed spending time outdoors, and, uh, you know, it makes traveling fun. You know, if I go down to Florida for 
for spring break or something, you get to see the unique birds down there. And it also, you know, we think birds are an excellent indicator of what's going on in nature. And so that's part of why we feel like when we see those declines of, uh, with birds in the country, it's, it's a, a hint that, that we need to take action because... You better uh, better look at what you're doing. Right, yeah. right, yep. I'll never forget, it's a little bit off the topic, but um, when I was at Iowa State, I forget what course, but anyway, uh, we had a guest speaker who studied polar bears. Mm, mm -hmm. And um, uh, the most remarkable thing he said is that the the hunter got a polar bear, native Eskimo, sometimes they did, they would analyze or analyze their, um, um, if they have any chemicals. Oh, sure, yeah. And here they found polar bears in the Arctic that were, Carrying chemicals from Iowa cornfields. Mm. <laughs> You're like, well, how, how did that, that happen? Get? Yeah. Well, it, it there's a reason. The, river, the chemical got is in the river. The river got in the ocean. The ocean went up currents this way. Yeah. And we're in the seals. The seals got it, and the polar bears yeah. ate the seals. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, probably snow geese too that are heading up there and and eating out of the fields in Iowa. And there then, you go. And I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, just another bird story for me of the killdeer. I think I was 12 years old. I stumbled across one that was on its nest. And of course, it, it straggled away and its wing was hanging. And I go, oh, I, I, I'll catch it. And uh, <laughs> so I chased it, chased it, chased it. And then suddenly the damn thing flew away. I go, I thought you had a broken wing. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty effective, right? They did a good job of luring you away from that that nest, probably in a Kmart parking lot or something. Exactly. You know, like, yep. And uh, later, of course, I got into television. I did a story about the killdeer. Yes. And my yeah. grandson, I used him as the guinea pig. He he went up to this <laughs> killdeer and he was going to catch it too. Uh, What's well, a wonderful thing, and of course, the killdeer uses that trick on fox and everything else. Yeah. So, right. Yep. Anyway. Uh, Dale, I just have a couple uh, more minutes here. Dale Gentry, the Audubon Society I'm talking about. Uh, we've talked about some of the work you're doing, some of the things that birds need. As somebody just listening who likes birds, um, uh, they think maybe they're feeding them, they're saving the birds. I, th I think that's, that's been kind of poo-pooed. You yeah. can feed them for your own enjoyment. It, it probably it doesn't hurt, you know. What What would you tell people who have an interest in in birds? Yeah. About what they can do to, yeah. to help out. Yeah, that's a good... Well, here, I think the, 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 the greatest place to start, honestly, is just getting to know your birds. And I think that if you get familiar with your backyard birds, your, your chickadees and cardinals and some of the other things that are flowing through, I think if you get to know those birds, you're going to gain an appreciation for them and you're going to gain a concern for them. And I think that's true for almost anything. You know, it's hard to care about something that you don't know the first thing about. And as true. we are educated about what's going on around the world, whether it's in Ukraine or in Central America. We learn about it and we, and we w want to help out. And I think that's just human nature. So uh, the first thing is just, just get to know your birds and then, and then there are going to be opportunities. You know, they're, they're tied to water conservation, to, to air quality, to habitat, you know. So plant a few trees in your yard. Think about putting, think about your backyard and turning that into bird habitat. Try and plant a few more native trees that are going to be, you know, a, a good food source for birds. Um, so, you know, feeding birds is great. They don't really need it to get by, but it, it helps us enjoy them. But 
where there are a number of opportunities. And I like to think, you know, at, at Audubon, we, we look at our state framework for our spatial priorities as important bird areas, right? So what are the important bird areas in the state that we want to work in to take care of our Minnesota birds? And I want to encourage people to think about their backyard as an important bird area because we, we've got research now showing that urban environments, suburban environments, those are really important, especially uh, during migration season. Birds are passing through, they're heading up north, they're looking for a, a bite to eat uh, as they stop over. So the more food that we can provide, not see, you know sunflower seeds and feeders, but insects and berries and whatnot through native plants can really be a fantastic food source and a great opportunity to serve those birds that you're getting interested in. Great advice, Dale. Get to know your birds and you'll have a passion for them. That's right. It yeah. certainly worked for me. Yeah. <laughs> Dale Gentry, the Audubon Society, my guest today. So that concludes this Minnesota Bound podcast. Hope uh, you showed. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show that went to the birds. Let me say this. We need to thank our sponsors for the Minnesota Bound podcast. And they are in no order of importance here, but Oreo and Ritz crackers for sure. Good, good eating. My favorite bank, Star Bank. Hewitt Docks, got to get out of the water, right? Connecticut, my favorite water system. Aluma Trailers, I got one. They're awesome. And Minnesota Propane. Remember, introduce a kid to the great outdoors. Take them bird watching. I'm Ron Shera. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.